0: Exodus chapter 12, we're we're back to our study after a really wonderful, really special weekend with Ed Moore and the young people from North Shore Baptist Church in Queens, New York. And this seems like a really good time to say thank you to all of you who work so hard. I want to thank especially uh, Pastor Dick and the evangelism committee. For, for leading us in what I think is one of the most exciting outreaches that we've done, in recent memory anyway. Uh, last weekend really was a perfect prelude to our summer ministries. And I just want you to know once again that the prelude continues. It'll continue tonight because we're asking all who will be involved this summer in some way or, or another to come to our family gathering tonight so that we can uh, give you a little bit more orientation to the various responsibilities, but most importantly, so that we can pray for the Lord's blessing on our efforts. Um, So that's just another little plug. But I hope that you will also come to family gathering tonight because, because you understand how important it is to participate in the Lord's Supper. Our Savior has instituted a memorial meal, for his people to partake of as a regular reminder of the greatest rescue story ever. And uh, it seems to me that we, we skip such a meal to our spiritual um, malnourishment. So I want to encourage you uh, well, to come tonight, and I trust that you might even be prompted to attend... Uh, tonight in a way that you haven't been previously by a reflection on Genesis chapter 12. I I trust that this morning we will all grow in in understanding of and appreciation for communion through our passage today as it gives us an opportunity to look at that meal's precursor which is the Passover, the Passover. So just a real quick recap to kind of Uh, remind you where we are in the narrative. I know it's been a couple of weeks, but Moses and Aaron have just left the presence of Pharaoh and they've threatened him with a final plague, a fatal plague. If he dared continue to disobey the Lord's command to him, uh, which was, of course, to let Israel go, to grant them their freedom from slavery, to let them go so that they might worship Yahweh, their God, this is what the Lord had threatened to do back in uh, chapter eleven, verse four. Uh, he says, "About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die—from the firstborn of Pharaoh to uh, to who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who sits behind the handmill, and even to the firstborn of all the cattle." That's what. God has threatened to do and there was really never any doubt about the outcome I hope you're you're not sitting here in suspense you understand what is about to happen it's because God's been sovereign throughout all of this and at the same time Pharaoh's been stubborn throughout all of this so the final verse of chapter 11 really shouldn't surprise us when it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh didn't let the people go out of his land and the way that the Lord is setting all of this up is that we know exactly the consequences that are coming but the thing is and maybe you notice this we don't read about that fateful night we don't read about the consequences until the latter half of chapter 12 past the point that Caleb just read for us in our text today the narrative is paused so to speak so that The Lord can prepare his people for what is coming. And the people need to be prepared, both for that night and for their future commemoration of that night. So what we have here in our text today are instructions about the Passover. And we'll note a number of important things about uh, that Passover. We'll note both, I think, the mercy of that meal, as well as the meal itself. And since we'll be discussing a meal, I think it's only appropriate that we would do so by looking at this text uh, through a number of M's, as in mmm. <laughs> so let's look first at uh, the month, the month. In verse 2, the Lord gives this instruction. This month, shall be for you the beginning of months, literally the head of the months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. You know, some some events are so monumental that they require a calendar reset. I was born on February 22nd, 1977. But in a very real sense, my life didn't begin until August the 9th, 2003. And that's when I married Jamie. 20 years ago this summer and that was such a life-changing event that it became things reset it actually became a, a much more meaningful point of reference for me than even my own birth date now in the same way what the Lord is fixing to do and you can see already my wife's influence on me <laughs> what the Lord is fixing to do is going to be so monumental so earth-shattering that it's going to require a calendar reset. The final plague, the death of the, the firstborn resulting in the exodus, it's about to go down, and when it does, it'll be the defining moment in Israel's history. Even more so, I think, I think scripture bears this out, that it's more of a defining moment in Israel's history than that time when God made very great and precious promises to their forefather Abraham. And so since this 10th plague and the Exodus are going to happen this month, this month, henceforth, must now be the new, new year. And we're talking about the month of Aviv, which is what the Canaanites called it, or the month of Nisan, which is what the Babylonians would later call it, This is a a calendar that's based on um, the moon. In our calendar, which is based on the sun, this kind of corresponds to late March into April. So that's the time period that we're talking about. And what the Lord is saying to Israel is basically, April is the new January. Okay? Nissan is the new new year for you. So that the life of the nation will henceforth revolve around the great event of the exodus. So that the calendar itself is going to point people back constantly to the second greatest rescue story ever. Now, the first greatest rescue story, of course, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God who took on flesh, who lived and who died in order to rescue his people out of slavery to sin and to self and to Satan. And the advent of our Lord was so monumental, you understand, that all of human history must now be seen only in reference to him. Our Savior reset the calendar, if you will, so that the millennia prior to his arrival on the scene are called BC, or simply before Christ, and the millennia that follow are AD, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. This is, this is what our whole, whole calendar now uh, needs to be reset to. And that's because he is truly the Lord of history. As many people have said down through the years, it is his story. And uh, indeed it is so. Let's look secondly at the menu. The menu. The Passover involved, in the first instance, a meal. A meal. And afterwards, it was to be kept as an annual feast to the Lord. So we might ask, uh, what was on the menu? Uh, What's for supper? You know, that's the question that hungry teenagers ask when they barge through the door after school. That's the question that um, hungry husbands ask when they barge through the door after work. And it really doesn't matter in either of those two instances what the answer is because basically anything will do. We're just hungry. But not in the case of the Passover. Not just anything will do. You you can see here that the Lord is giving very specific instructions about this meal from the preparation to what to do with the leftovers. So let's take a look at the menu. The entree is lamb. It's lamb. It's the young offspring of either a goat or or a sheep. It's your choice. But the lamb must be a male, and it must be a yearling, must be a young young, um, sheep or goat, and it has to be without blemish. It must be selected on the 10th day of that, what is now the first month, and it's to be kept until day 14. And I'm not exactly sure why, why that period of time. Perhaps it was just to give some, some time for the family to further examine their animal to make sure that it was, in fact, without blemish. Um, I don't know. But on the 14th day, the lambs were to be slaughtered at twilight. And then, as verse 8 explains, the lambs were to be eaten that night. First, um, they had to be roasted whole over an open fire. They weren't to be open ra- eaten raw, which is what I think some primitive societies would have done. It's what the pagans would do out of a sort of superstition. And uh, the, the meat was not to be boiled. Again, the Lord doesn't give us all the reasons for these instructions But one possible explanation is that the boiling would require first cutting up the animal into parts so that they could fit into a pot. And evidently, it's important that none of these lambs' bones be broken. You can see that what the Lord imagines here is that the people would roast the lamb whole with its head and its parts and all the rest. In addition... Um, in, when you roast a lamb over an open fire, that is in great keeping with its role as a sacrifice. And I'll say more about that in a minute. But lamb's on the menu. And what about portion? What about portion size? Well, generally speaking, we're talking one lamb per fam. Okay, that's, the, that's a, a loose paragraph of the end of verse 3. If you're the Kranz family, you might need two. Um, But if if you're a small household, you you might want to invite your neighbors over so that together you can share um, a meal. So you can begin to see the communal nature, the family sort of nature of this meal. And you know that when you're over for um, dinner at someone's house and, and they keep offering you seconds and thirds, You know, when that happens, you always walk away from people's houses just absolutely stuffed. It's because the woman keeps, like, forcing food on you. And she'll say something like, eat more, please. I don't want any leftovers. Well, in the case of the Passover meal, there couldn't be any leftovers. Leftover lamb was going to be a problem. The Lord instructs in verse 10 that any leftovers needed to be burned. Anything that couldn't be eaten just because you're too stuffed, needed to be dealt with. Finally, they needed to be burned. This was a sacred feast. And so it would be profane, you know, if you were to put leftover lamb in Tupperware and then munch on it the next day kind of casually. Uh, Something of great significance is lost. And so that was not not to happen at all. Look at verse 8 again. It tells us a little bit more about the menu. It tells us uh, the garnish, and it tells us the side dish. As for the garnish, we're told that the lamb is to be eaten with bitter uh, herbs, bitter herbs. This would be some sort of wild lettuce or some kind of root, like chicory. I've heard uh, Norma talking a lot before about eating dandelions. I can't imagine that, but that would certainly qualify as a bitter herb. And it's interesting that the Lord, again here, gives no explanation as to why the people were to eat bitter herbs as part of this memorial meal. And and perhaps he didn't give an explanation because it would have been obvious to them in a way that it's not obvious to us. But I think maybe we have a clue in the fact that the only previous use of this word bitter occurs uh, in chapter 1, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 14, where it was used to describe the lives of the Israelites uh, when they were enslaved by Egypt. Their Egyptian slavery, it says, made their lives bitter. So I think it's at least reasonable to understand the bitter herbs as kind of a reminder to the people of their life before this great escape. There's a much more valuable spiritual exercise um, at play here, though, and I think it's valuable for us, too. I don't know about, about you, but I have a almost visceral reaction when I think about the sins of my past. There's certain things that I did when I was younger that literally make me want to vomit. And no doubt some of you are filled with all kinds of regret about your past life. And if you could wave a magic wand, you know, if you could era- just with a snap of a finger, erase those memories from your mind, that you would do so in a heartbeat. Because those memories just haunt you. I, I thought that way. For most of my life, it, it actually wasn't until relatively recently that I understood what a mistake that kind of thinking is, and I learned this from a sermon from Vodi Bachum. This was a sermon that our friend Ralph Johnson made me listen to. He insisted that I listen to, and uh, it was on. It was probably on in um, some long ride to some conference across the country. Uh, Vody Bauckham preached this sermon on Psalm 51. And um, in that message, Bauckham gave a number of reasons why it would be terrible to forget your past life. And he said this, you, you really should, here I am, I'll, I'll stand in honor of my friend Ralph and, and really push that sermon on you. You should listen to that sermon about brokenness from Psalm 51 by Vodi Bachum, But here, here's kind of like the, the, the part that, that just penetrated into my heart. He said, you can't have the memory of my sin. I won't let you take it. It reminds me of God's goodness to me. It reminds me of his grace in my life. It reminds me of where I was and where I never want to be again. It reminds me that his work in me may not be complete, but it is effectual. I am not who I ought to be, but hallelujah, I am not who I was. And brothers and sisters, it would do us some spiritual good, I'm suggesting, to taste those bitter herbs as a potent reminder of all that the Lord has done in our lives. So, You've got barbecued lamb, you've got bitter herbs, and the main side dish, unleavened bread. Now there's a lot of discussion of unleavened bread in our passage. Not only is it the main side dish for the Passover meal, but that meal actually begins a full week of feasting, if you could call it that, on unleavened bread. It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and I think it would be a mistake. It is a mistake to do what a lot of people do, and that is to look at Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread as two separate things. No, they're, they're intimately connected. They're continuous. For, for a week afterwards, after that Passover meal, and it's framed on both ends by Sabbaths, in which you're not supposed to do any work except for cooking, the people during that week were to eat no leaven. They were to remove all of their leaven from their house on day one of the feast, which is the 14th day of the month. And you can see from verse 19 how serious it was for a person to disregard this instruction that the Lord gave on this matter. He, he said, if anyone eats what is leaven, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. They were to be excommunicated, and that meant often worse in that culture. When you're cut off from the life of the people, it sometimes resulted in death. Now, once again, the Lord gives very little in the way of explanation of the significance of these things. What do, what do, what do we mean about what, why is he so concerned with leaven and unleavened bread? Um, The Lord is just content to say in verse 17, For on this day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. That's what the Lord gives as rationale for why no leaven was permitted during this time. Now in seeking to understand the significance of unleavened bread, many commentators kind of pick up on the fact that leaven in scripture, kind of came to be understood as a metaphor for sin and for corrupting influences. So, for example, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that he, he's telling that church to stop tolerating the sexual immorality of one of its members and to exercise church discipline on that person to cast him out of the congregation And um, in his appeal to that congregation to do that, Paul writes, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. So you can see there how leaven is is taken, uh, not just by Paul, but by other of the biblical authors to stand for sin and corrupting sorts of influences. So then um, people are able to kind of bring that idea back into Exodus and uh, think that the idea here is to, that the Lord's commanding people to get rid of the leaven in their houses and by doing so, he's indicating to the people in a tangible and memorable way that they need to make a clean break with their sin. That they, that they need to just leave sin behind. As someone has put it, Maybe many people have put it. Israel is going to get out of Egypt, but the bigger issue is that Egypt needs to get out of Israel. So if leaven stands for sin, then unleavened is basically making a statement about the need to make a clean break from sin. And it represents a, a new start for a holy nation. So that is one explanation that I wanted to share with you and, and perhaps you're compelled with by it. For me, I'm, I'm a little bit more uh, cautious about things like that because that line of argumentation is very compelling and it certainly would preach. Trust me, I mean, I, I would love for that to be the case. But it's, I, I'm just not confident that we're getting that from the passage itself. I think that's a later understanding that's imported back into this passage. I think the simplest explanation here is that the reason why you have unleavened bread here is because on that first night, there was no time for the bread to rise. There was no time for the leaven to work. And so by eating unleavened bread, then and in subsequent years, they could be reminded of the haste of that night. And that leads us squarely to our next M, which is the manner. The manner. What is the manner in which this supper is to be eaten? Table manners. We we talk about table manners, right? That was a big deal when I was growing up in my parents' household household. They had lots of rules for us. For example, we were forbidden from singing at the table, uh, putting our elbows on the table. We were prohibited from leaning back on the hind legs of our chairs at the table. It goes on and on. And each violation required a fine of 25 cents that went towards missions, okay? Okay. And I suppose you can imagine that I was a, a frequent violator. I, I like to think that I single-handedly funded the evangelization of the 10:40 window. <laughs> and then, when I was a teenager, I would I would eat like I was from one of those countries. I would eat like where I didn't um, know where my next meal was coming from. That's what my parents would say to me I would eat like one of those cowboys that you see on the movies you know maybe they've been riding for a few days and they finally you know check into the boarding house and they sit down at the table the lady puts a basket of bread in front of them and they start eating that bread like they're ripping off the head of a chicken you I don't know that anyway that's that's how I ate and uh it wasn't very popular with my parents to say the least My mom would say things to me like, take your time, son. It's not going anywhere. You know, slow down, breathe, digest. Now, I'll admit that it was pretty rude to eat in that manner, but sometimes it's necessary. You know, a few months ago, our son Job got a job at the uh, Wayland Food Mart, the Sure Fine up there and uh, he often gets the evening shift during the week from 6 to 9 but for those first couple of months he was he was all into track and he had track pa- practice up until 5:30 p.m. so then he'd come home in a rush and then and then he'd have to take a shower trust me it was vital <laughs> that he had the shower but then he had to try to scarf down his supper and all of this you know to get to work on time and a little bit early. So those days, you know, we didn't get after Job for not even breathing between bites because it was absolutely necessary. Well, eating in this manner, which is to say eating without manners, was absolutely necessary for the people of Israel on that fateful night. Look at verse 11. It says, in this manner, you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. You, you, all of this is very abnormal, you understand. You know that when you eat, you're supposed to loosen your belt, right? To make room for, um, for, for what's com- coming in. But this night, belts needed to be cinched, You know, loins needed to be girded, shirts needed to be tucked in, ready to take off and run. And ordinarily, uh, especially in an Eastern context, you'd have your shoes off in the house and you'd certainly have your shoes off at a meal, but not this night. You know, sandals needed to be on and buckled, ready to book it. And typically, and I hope this is Self evident, you'd want your hands to be free for eating, but not this night. No, you needed to have your staff in one hand while you're jamming lamb into your mouth with your other hand. And that night, all of the moms in Israel would be saying to their sons, Eat in haste, hurry up, not because the food's not going anywhere, but because we're going somewhere, we're about to get out of here. ordinarily it's extremely rude to eat and run it's criminal to dine and dash but not when the lord is on the move not when the lord is is ready to go and that night things were about to kick off and when they did kick off they were going to escalate real quickly everything that god said was going to happen is about to happen and and he's he's already said he's I don't want to use the word predicted because it's much stronger than predicted. God has planned that when Pharaoh finally relents, which he would do at the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh is not merely going to offer you know, allowance or permission for the Israelites to leave. No, he's going to expel them. He's going to demand that they get out of there as fast as they can. He would beg them to leave as fast as their legs could carry them. And so they needed to be ready. This is dressing like this. Eating this way, you understand, is an act of faith. It's a way of saying, the people saying, I believe what God says he will do, he's going to do. And I'm, I'm going to be a part of that. And so the meal was to be eaten in that manner. Not just the first night, but year after year as a reminder of the fact that they have a God who is on the move and who is working hastily for the deliverance of his people. I hope you believe that. Let's look in the first pla- fourth place at the mark. The mark. I've been hinting at this all along, but I don't want you to think of the Passover as only a meal. I want you to understand it as a mercy. Understand that it was, that that, that was an, a terrible night. It was a horrific night. It was a night on which God unleashed the destroyer, and this is this is a this is another way I think of referring to the angel of death or uh, whatever. The Lord is speaking in very graphic terms, but there's no doubt about it that this destroyer is is executing on behalf of God. He's exercising God's judgment, and this destroyer is going to come throughout all of the land of Egypt, and he's going to kill every firstborn, from the greatest to the least, including the livestock. The Lord warned Pharaoh that on this fateful night, a shriek of horror is going to arise from the people, such as had never been heard before or ever will be heard again. This is going to be a horrific night. As I said, the destroyer would execute God's judgment on a number of different parties. Obviously, on Pharaoh and on the Egyptians for their treatment, or should I say mistreatment of the people of Israel to enslave them and to oppress them. Uh, This is judgment for Pharaoh's uh, persistent rebellion against the command of the Lord, which came to him over and over and over again to let his people go. But, so it's on Pharaoh and Egypt, but it's also, do you see, on the gods of Egypt? You can see this at the end of verse 12. This is judgment on the gods of Egypt. We've seen all along in these plagues, haven't we, about how these signs, these wonders are doing double duty as a total takedown of the gods and the idols of Egypt. Everything that they claimed to have jurisdiction over, Yahweh, the God of Israel, was showing to be completely superior or over. And so this final plague was going to be a judgment against those idols. But there's another party to God's judgment that I think that we often miss. We're in danger of missing this even today. That is the people of Israel themselves. I want you to understand that by default, they are under the judgment and wrath of God. They are sinners too. They are rebellious and faithless, as, as we have seen, and trust me, we will see very shortly how, just how faithless and rebellious these people are. Indeed, as Ephesians chapter 2 makes crystal clear, we are all, by nature, objects of wrath. We, we are objects of God's righteous wrath, like the rest of mankind. There's no distinction. We're all deserving of it. And I say that we're prone to miss that fact, because for the last number of plagues, you'll recall, and perhaps it was mentioned explicitly for a bunch of them, but probably for all of them, the Lord has made a distinction between his people and Pharaoh's people, between the Israelites and the people of Egypt, But we understand from these, the Lord's Passover instructions, that by default, by default, the destroyer was going to fall on every family without distinction. Are you with me so far? I'm saying that that is what ought to happen by nature. That's what the the destroyer is going to do by default. But here's the difference. The Lord has made provision for his people to be protected against his coming wrath and judgment. And the details of that gracious provision are given in verse 7 and 13, and then again in verses 22 to 23, and it has everything to do with the slaughtered lamb. As I say, that lamb was not just for the sake of the meal, but it was for the sake of mercy. When that lamb was killed, when its neck was slit, the people were to drain its blood into a basin. And then taking a bunch of hyssop, which were you know a common plant, maybe twigs, some, some, a bunch of twigs with uh, its leaves still intact. It actually made a really nice little paintbrush. They were to dip that in the basin and paint the blood on the sides and the lintel of each house. And the idea is that when the angel of death, the destroyer, passed by, when he was passing through the land that night, he would see that mark and would know to pass over that house. That's where we get that that term. Judgment, then, wouldn't fall on that house, Because it had the blood of a slain lamb for covering. It was marked by the blood of a lamb. And Moses instructed that no one leave that house. That's the last thing that you want to do, is to come out from under the protection of that covering. That lamb, whose whose neck was slit, was in a very real sense a substitution. For each of those families, it was satisfaction for the wrath of God so that when God and his wrath passed by, he would move on. And that night, all the children of Israel prayed, Lord, let your judgment pass over us. Lord, let your love hover near. Don't let your sweet mercy pass over us. Let this blood cover over us here. And in this way, we come directly to our fifth and final point, the meaning, the meaning. Now in in giving the Passover as an annual feast, the Lord anticipates that the children are going to ask, what what are we doing here? What What does all of this mean? Very insightful of the Lord. He knows children. He knows that they love their why question. And so this is going to provide a a regular, a wonderful opportunity for parents to proclaim to the next generation all of the wonderful works of Yahweh to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. How when he struck the Egyptians, he spared his own people. It's a meal, it's a remembrance that is acted out, so to speak, so as to be appropriated and proclaimed and announced. It's kind of like the, uh, that event that's going on this weekend uh, in Canastillo at Lane's Cider Mill. Some of you might know that they, um, when they can each spring um, do a reenactment of the Battle of Lane's Mill, a Civil War battle. And it's for the purpose, they say this explicitly on their website, is for the purpose of introducing these epic-making events to the next generation and to, to have all of us kind of internalize the significance of those events even for our present day. So in the same way, an annual Passover meal reminds God's people of the mercy uh, that, he, that he showed to them when he caused his judgment to pass over them. It was as I'm very fond of saying, maybe you're sick of it by now, uh, an opportunity for them to proclaim to their children and to remind themselves of the second greatest rescue story of all time. And if you're in Christ today, you've experienced the first. God has sent his own son into the world for the salvation of his people. And the parallels here are too many to count. Maybe you've already made some of the connections in your mind. But consider this. When John the Baptist sees Jesus arrive on the scene, he declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if that wasn't clear enough, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. And as this lamb hangs on a tree, he cries out in bitter anguish. He says, I thirst. So the soldiers take a a sponge filled with sour wine. But then the question is, how do we get that up there? The cross is elevated. How do we get that sour wine to his lips? And there just happened to be a branch there. And I don't think it was mere coincidence that John mentions that that was hyssop. And that as the flesh of Jesus is broken, as the blood of Christ is spilt, we come to understand that there is only one way for guilty sinners to stand when the judgment comes, when the destroyer is let loose, and that is to be covered by the blood of the lamb, to come under the protection that's offered by a lamb that was sacrificed in our place, that made satisfaction to God for us, that satisfied the demands of his holy wrath. Only by the blood of Christ can God's judgment truly pass over us. And now, just before this epic-making event, this calendar-changing event, the Lord Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples in the upper room. And in view of the exodus, the, the greater exodus that was about to take place, Jesus transformed that meal. And he imbued it with, with a new significance, an even deeper significance. It was just a simple meal. It was just bread, common bread, which represented his body that would shortly be broken for them. And wine, can't get more common than that but it, it resembled his blood, which would soon be spilled for them. And as he gives that to them and to us, as a meal, as a regular remembrance of his mercy, we we take it and we receive it with thankfulness. These, these are very tangible, physical elements that we take into our bodies, which signifies the truth that we have believed these things for our eternal health. We're saying when we, when we take in these elements and they become part of us that all we have and all we ever need is Christ. The Christ who not only saves us but sustains us. He, he's rescued us out of all of our bondage the Christ who has redeemed us and who has brought us into a promised land. Well, very quickly, I just want to make three applications. Three applications. Number one, participate. Participate. Simply stated, when the church celebrates this memorial meal, all things being equal, if you're a Christian, you should be there. If you're part of the family of God, you should participate in the memorial meal that Christ himself has instituted, and you should do that regularly and joyfully. I hope you can see, even from our brief discussion here of the precursor, Passover, just how terrible and deadly it would be to say, nah, I don't think I'll celebrate that Passover. Maybe next year. You know, I've got other things to do. I've got other appointments on, in my calendar. In the same way, the Apostle Paul explains to the Corinthian Christians that their casualness, their carelessness in celebrating or not celebrating communion was a reason why a bunch of them were sick physically and some were even dying. We're not dealing with light things here. These aren't things that you just decide whether to take or leave. This has been given to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. So come, and don't just come, but come prepared in your hearts to partake in a worthy manner. Secondly, second point of application, praise, praise. Look at verse 27. And the people bowed their heads worshipped. When you come to truly understand just how the Lord has acted in Christ to protect you from his wrath, to grant you freedom from sin, doesn't that make you want to worship? Does that, doesn't that make you want to burst forth in songs of praise? It certainly doesn't make you want to go straight back into the sin that, that he's rescued you from makes me want to give my whole life to him he's he's ransomed me he's redeemed me the least I could do is give everything that I am and everything that I have in service to him and this is what the bowing signifies it signifies our humility our our willingness our recognition that we we are nothing and we are happy to be nothing if it means that Jesus will be everything so praise the Lord. Worship in the face of this mercy. And by worship, I don't mean just sing songs on the Sunday morning. I mean what Romans chapter 12 means, which is to give your whole life as an acceptable offering of worship to Christ. Praise the Lord. Why? Because great things he has done. And then thirdly, obey. Look at verse 28. Then the people of Israel went and did. They did so. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. That's, that's a very simple but profound sentence about obedience. That the right response of a people who have been so blessed. And I don't know what that means for you today. It might mean different things. Perhaps you're here today um, needing to obey in the very first instance. And by that I mean the Lord comes to you and commands you to repent of your sin and to believe the gospel. And it may be that you need to obey that command for today. And if that is you, if the Lord is impressing on your heart your desperate need for a Savior to come under the, the blood of Christ, then uh, I'd just invite you up to this front pew at the end of the service, and there would be folks there that would um, help you to walk in obedience to Christ in that respect. Um, some Some of you know the good that you ought to do, and up until this point, you're reluctant to do it. You're hesitant to do it. Well, in light of God's mercy and his grace, I'm I'm here to say to you, do it. Obey. Obey. Some of you know the sin that you're tempted to return to, maybe even this afternoon. And and you're going to return to it again like a dog returning to its vomit. And I'm calling on you to obey. If you're in Christ, if you've received his pardon, if judgment has passed over you, why are you going to go back into the sin that he has saved you from you obey by fleeing that sin and in the power of the spirit fighting that sin well we thank god for the mercy of judgment having passed over us through the blood of jesus christ and so with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth. As we share in his suffering, we proclaim Christ will come again and will join in the feast of heaven around the table of the king. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Amen.